0: This is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Later this hour, we hit the slopes to better understand North Carolina's snow industry, a notable notch in the state's tourism belt facing a changing climate. Before that, politics. In a bit, a conversation about the disproportionate number of women serving in elected office, how that influences policy, and what might change in this election year. But first, policy. Congress is in session today, so too, and perhaps more importantly, are many state legislatures. Each of North Carolina's neighbors gaveled in earlier this month. Virginia, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia. Other nearby states in session include Kentucky, Mississippi, and West Virginia. Alabama reconvenes next week. North Carolina legislators are not back until April, though. We figured it might be instructive to get an overview of what is and is not happening at capitals across the South and the nation. Here to help us synthesize is Reed Wilson, a former Washington Post reporter who founded and is today the editor of Pluribus News, a relatively new digital media source that offers comprehensive journalism on state level public policy in America. Reed, welcome to Do South. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me. Broad, concise, and admittedly oversimplified to start. What's the two or three sentence synopsis of what's happening at state legislatures in 2024?
1: Well, the big thing that legislators are doing these days is trying to understand the impacts and ramifications of artificial intelligence. This is a totally new area that lawmakers have never had to deal with before. But once ChatGPT came out last year, uh, it really shook a lot of people. And so now in states from coast to coast, north to south, everybody's trying to figure out what to do about AI, how how to spur the industry on, and how to set up the guardrails in large part, and I'm talking to a lot of these legislators, because they don't trust Congress to do anything about it.
0: Congress, of course, has this issue of being deadlocked, has for a long time. Uh, Who is shaping this AI policy? Are there advisors? Is this a lot of money? Do you have a, a sense of that at this point?
1: It, right now it's lawmakers trying to understand the scope of the issue they face. I mean, in talking to a lot of these lawmakers, I mean, they're about as clued into AI as I am, and I'm a notorious Luddite. So um, I think what a lot of legislators are doing are, are trying to understand what AI could mean, not just for state government, but also for uh, implications in the private sector too. You know, a lot of these algorithms can sort of learn in in some cases, you know, the the racism that exists in society. And, and so people can can uh, or that the algorithms themselves can can discriminate uh sort of can learn
0: to discriminate. Hmm. And lawmakers are trying to figure out how to put a stop to that. Is there any particularly notable legislation that you've seen as it pertains to A.I.?
1: Not yet. They're in very early stages of trying to learn about about these issues. Um, What I I think we're seeing more in the technology space is a push towards digital privacy. Uh, California started this last year. Uh, A number of other eight states passed something uh, in 2023. I think we're going to see a lot of other states coming up with uh, efforts to give residents and citizens more control over their digital footprint uh, in the online space.
0: So, this is obviously one big issue. It seems to be a through line through red states or blue states. Uh, what are some of the other big policy issues playing out at state legislatures this year? And are there other collective through lines or is this more of a situation where there are clear divides between Republican controlled states and, and states that are controlled by Democrats?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the way we cover things and, and one of the things that I've learned about legislatures over the years is that, you know, what happens in Raleigh or uh, Atlanta or Tallahassee today is going to happen in 25 other states next year and then federally the year after that. And one of the things that a lot of southern states are considering now is something that North Carolina did last year, which is accept uh, money from the federal government to expand Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Care Act. You know, uh, basically 10 years after the Affordable Care Act passed, North Carolina finally said, all right, we're going to expand Medicaid. This thing isn't going away. And now we're seeing those conversations happening in other southern states that have been resistant to Medicaid expansion as well. Um, several North Carolina lawmakers are having conversations with legislators in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina. Uh, all of these issues are, are coming up. Now, they, they face a lot of resistance from conservative lawmakers who don't like the Affordable Care Act, don't want to expand uh, coverage. But a lot of those remaining 10 states that have yet to expand coverage, they're looking at the other states, Republican states and Democratic states alike, that have accepted this, and they see... Uh, something positive there. So there is movement after a decade of, of no movement. Another thing I'll point to is uh, the public health crisis that that Americans are facing, um, the opioid uh, crisis that has become a fentanyl crisis. Uh, we're hearing a lot of conversations in every state uh, to try to figure out ways to bring down the number of overdose deaths, which is stunningly high. More than 100,000 Americans died last year uh, from drug overdoses. About three quarters of those were attributed to opioids. A lot more were contributed by fentanyl use. Uh, And so lawmakers are trying to figure out ways to to stop this this crisis uh, that's been going on for the better part of a decade now.
0: Yeah, better part of a decade. I've been covering this for uh, the better part of a decade. Are there any states that are making inroads? Because one of the most painfully frustrating things, as this continues to be in the news, is it doesn't seem like it's getting better. And in fact, in some places, the numbers are trending uh, in a worse direction.
1: Yeah, we are seeing some progress uh, in states that have been among the hardest hit. West Virginia has had some uh, some recent success. But then again, that's slowing the growth rate of overdoses or bringing down uh, the, the extremely high numbers by small margins. So there's a lot of work left to do. I think we're seeing sort of two main strategies here. On one side tends to be in in more liberal states. Uh, We're seeing bills to create things like safe injection sites. The theory being users are going to use drugs. Why not give them a safe place to do so? On the other side, we're seeing a push towards uh, higher penalties. For drug dealers who uh, sell a product that might uh, kill or harm somebody, so that a person whose whose drugs uh, kill somebody else might be subject to greater jail sentences uh, than somebody who's just arrested for for drug dealing. So those are sort of the two tracks here, uh, but it's going to take a, a much broader solution to bring down you know what's been a crisis for a very long time.
0: Reed Wilson is here on Due South. He is the editor and also founder of Pluribus News. It's a website that focuses on what's happening at state capitals across the country with comprehensive policy coverage. Reed, the intersection of policy and politics is perpetually intertwined, as you know, generally leans more heavily toward politics in a general election year. Is that truism any truer here in 2024?
1: In some cases, it is. I mean, we're seeing some states that are introducing legislation that is basically only meant to require the other party to take an unpopular vote, uh, you know, something that's probably not going to pass in the long run, but the other party doesn't want to you know, be on the wrong side of voters at, at some point. States, though, and this may be the eighth grade civics nerd in me, uh, there's less of a political focus in most states. The, the poison that infects Washington DC has not bled down uh, into most states. Now it exists and and it's getting worse. Uh, I've seen this get worse over the last 10 years that I've been covering state legislatures uh, but you know there's there are still a lot of lawmakers who go to work and try to get something done for the benefit of their state. The lawmakers who serve in in you know state legislatures in, in southern states or pretty much anywhere else they're not making the big bucks right they're they're going to work for in some cases ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year uh and they've got second jobs and they've got other things to do so they're not motivated by anything other than you know, the goodwill of trying to get something done for the people
0: I'm gonna say it and continue to say it until our listeners get annoyed and tell me to stop saying it. Part-time legislators in North Carolina make thirteen thousand nine hundred and fifty-one dollars a year with per diem of $104 a day, even though it's effectively a full-time legislature at this point. And there are all sorts of issues with that. Uh, Reed Wilson with us. Uh Reed, what are legislatures simply not touching this year?
1: We're seeing less of a focus on things that that really animated a lot of legislatures last year. Uh, I'd point to abortion rights and issues around transgender uh gender affirming care, uh transgender bathroom bills and you know there those issues are coming up in a couple of states uh, but for the most part the conservative states that want to restrict abortion did all that last year. Uh the conservative states that want to restrict transgender rights did all that last year. So there's less to do in in this this year because a lot of those issues are off the table. I think another thing that we're that we're not seeing as much of is uh, new spending, and that's because you know, we've just come out of this pandemic era when money from the federal government was flowing freely to the states. Every state was seeing absolute bumper budgets. Now those budget growth, the budget growth is slowing, and the uh, overall uh, tax receipts are, are either shrinking or their growth is is tapering off. That's not true in every state. There are some states that are still doing very well, but. You know, there are some early signs that we're going to go back to the sort of budget lean times. So I'm seeing fewer legislators proposing grand spending plans uh, and more legislators talking about tightening the belt or spending money on one-off projects that won't obligate them to keep spending uh, if if things go south in the future
0: couple minutes left here. I want to ask you about what is at stake as we think about the makeup of legislative bodies. There are 40, I believe, so-called trifectas across the country, which means both chambers of a legislature are held by one party, and that's uh, in unison with uh, the governor's mansion. Uh, Are there states that you're looking at thinking, oh, this, this state could shift or this chamber could shift this year?
1: Yeah. And and there are there's always sort of the the typical targets, the the states where things are narrowly controlled. Arizona, Pennsylvania, uh, Minnesota and Massachusetts, excuse me, Minnesota and Michigan uh, both flipped to Democratic control last year. But. In more and more states, we're seeing people voting a straight ticket. You know, for a long time, there were these ancestral Democrats, ancestral Republicans who might vote for the other party's candidate for president, but they were still voting for their party's candidate for state legislature, for sheriff or something like that. You know, I, I remember former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee saying that 86 percent of elected legislative officials in Arkansas when when he was in office were Democrats. Well, that's not the case anymore. People in Arkansas vote a pretty straight Republican ticket. Um, So, you know, there, there is only one legislature in America uh, in which Democrats hold one chamber and Republicans hold the other. And that's the state of Pennsylvania right now. And uh, as a matter of fact, the Pennsylvania state house is only a two seat Democratic majority. So most of these legislatures are, are pretty solidly in one camp or the other. But, you know, you can you can guess that the presidential swing states, they're also the legislative swing states.
0: Absolutely, not a surprise that Pennsylvania is a battleground. Reed Wilson is the founder and editor of Pluribus News, a website that focuses on comprehensive state government policy coverage. He's been our guest here on Do South. Reed, thank you so much. We got it, Jeff. We'll be back on the other side with a conversation about the disproportionate number of women in elected office. This is Do South on WUNC. Welcome back. It's Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. There's good news and there's bad news as we think about female representation in elected office. The good news? Currently, there are more women in the U.S. serving in public office than at any time previously in American history. But there's also bad news, and that's because just one third of all U.S. legislators are not men. Today, we're spending some time talking about that disproportionate representation and, while still paltry, what the improvements have been in the past couple of decades. Here to help us better understand this issue is Jennifer Barry hawes She works for ProPublica in their South Hub office, and she has written about women in elected office recently. Jennifer, welcome to Do South.
2: Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me.
0: Your recent ProPublica piece is titled, How Many of Your State's Lawmakers Are Women? And it notes that across much of the Southeast, state legislatures are more than 80% male. Let's note some obvious and perhaps not so obvious factors right off the top. What accounts for that large gap?
2: Well, if you think about the history of the South, it certainly makes some sense. Uh, It's a very traditional... Uh, landscape. You tend to have very traditional views of family roles and gender roles. Um, one thing that I found particularly interesting was that if you look at the number of female legislators in Republican states, which Republicans tend to um, have fewer women than Democrats do in their legislatures, um, the the South is by far the region with the lowest representation of women, whereas the upper Midwest and the Northwest red states uh, have many more women. So I think it, it speaks a lot to the culture of, uh, of the Deep South in particular.
0: Go second level for me, if you would. Is that a religious culture? Is that a patriarchy? Is that more progress in those uh, areas with a greater number of women in elected office?
2: I think it's yes and yes. So you have... Um, just basic traditional views of women uh, and their roles as mothers and primary caregivers to children. Um, almost all of the Southern female legislators I talked to told me that when they campaigned, they were asked questions like, well, if you win, who will take care of your children? Uh, one woman in particular who had very young children uh, told me that she was asked this a number of times, and she thought it was uh, really interesting given the fact that her opponent Uh, she's an attorney, uh, that her opponent had a full-time job and she had a part-time job. But the the issue was not uh, her work status. The issue was the fact that she was a mother. And so um, you just can't get away from the fact that there are traditional gender roles here. Mm -hmm. But you add on to that the layer of religion. And in certain areas of the Southeast, um, I'm in South Carolina, and in the upper part of our state, it's very uh, conservative, uh, very religious, and you add into that uh, traditional views of, of the Bible and gender roles, and um, and you can see where it becomes um, um, more difficult, especially for women who have young children at home, to consider running for office or even doing that they should do. A number of of women told me that they really didn't even think about running until someone encouraged them to do so, yeah. that it just... They thought of themselves as, as um, you know, behind the scenes players.
0: Got it. Uh, also want to, I guess, hammer down on the issue of fundraising. Is there an additional hurdle or a higher hurdle as as women enter this space? Do they have and I'm not faulting them, but is there more of a challenge? Let, let me back up and just say raising money is such a fundamental part of politics at this point. And here in North Carolina, State lawmakers have to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to earn a seat where they don't even make $14,000 a year. Money is so so central to this role. What's it like for women who are entering this space? And are there some historical challenges or perhaps a higher hurdle as we think about women who are working to raise money in this, this political landscape?
2: What the women told me was that it could be more difficult for them to raise money, and particularly for women of color uh, it can be more difficult. But the primary obstacle is incumbency. So the main the main barrier for them was fundraising against an incumbent. And that is regardless of gender. So if you consider that you know 80-85% of lawmakers across much of the Southeast are men, um, obviously the incumbents are men, and that makes it much more difficult for anybody to run against them, but particularly women. The Center for American Women in Politics has done a study of this and found that it was particularly uh, difficult for women of color to run, Um, which makes some sense also in the Southeast, if you consider that um, most Black women running for office anywhere, but particularly in the Southeast, are Democrats. um, Fundraising to run a campaign as a Democrat is just more difficult because um, these are, are largely Republican states.
0: So in state legislatures that are comprised largely of men, largely of white men, largely of older white men, this, of course, helps to skew the shaping of policy, the framework of policy. And there are a number of things that get um, short shrift and are not higher on the docket because there are fewer women. Maybe I'm editorializing a little bit here, but I I think this is uh, fairly obvious. Let's talk about the issue of abortion, you note within your article that of the 10 states where men make up the largest share of the legislators, eight have strict abortion bans. It hardly seems like a coincidence to me, a former legislative reporter, but I'd like for you to unpack it a little bit further.
2: Sure. You know, some of that has to do, obviously, with the fact that these are, as I mentioned earlier, primarily Republican states. So it's not to say that conservative women who Uh, who might be elected, would have voted any differently. But the conversation certainly was interesting to watch. And I I saw time and time again where you had uh, woman after woman after woman speaking um, to a chamber uh, where she served about the need for things like a rape exception or um, broader health exceptions for women. Um, And then having male legislator after male legislator speaking against it. And the women often began to share these very personal stories about um, uh, sexual assaults and pregnancy complications, the loss of pregnancies, stories that uh, they often hadn't shared even with people in their families, but they felt compelled to do so because the men in the room, they felt um, didn't fully understand what they were talking about. So there was this moment in the Tennessee Senate where you had a woman named London Lamar. And Senator Lamar was uh, very visibly pregnant. And she stood up to speak and she wanted to um, ask for a broader health exception to the state's very strict abortion ban. And she speaks and she, she reminds her fellow senators about uh, the fact that when she was uh, rather far into her last pregnancy, she suffered health complications. Her baby died in utero. And she really, really feared that this would happen to her again. Um, So she's telling the story. And um, basically, the the Republicans in the Senate uh, tabled her amendment. And then after she spoke, another woman named uh, Charlene Oliver, a senator, stood up and spoke about um, being sexually assaulted in high school and um, asking for a rape exception which the, the Republicans also tabled. And then at the very end of that conversation, the last person to speak was this much older white man who talked about being um, pro-life and basically the, the chamber voted uh, as he requested. And to me, it was just a very stark situation where these women felt like they needed to share these really personal stories to make a point, only to um, feel... Ignored in the end, right? And it's not to say again that you know Republican women would have voted any different, but it was the fact that they felt compelled to share these personal stories. For instance, Senator Lamar did not know that uh, Senator Oliver had um, had dealt with uh, this kind of trauma in her past, uh, and yet uh, Senator Oliver felt compelled compelled to share it with a group of you know sort of relative strangers. That that's the kind of uh, thing mm-hmm. that all of the women I talked to, regardless of their party, mentioned was that there's just, um, there's a difference when the legislators truly personally understand what um, what they're
0: voting on. You mentioned the word stark. I think I want to pull on that thread here in a minute. Let me just remind listeners that uh, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jennifer Barry hawes a reporter with ProPublica's South Hub. She's on the line from Charleston, South Carolina. And we're talking about the disparate uh, representation of women in elected office, specifically state governments, state legislatures across the country. And I'm going to maybe synthesize what you were just talking about by saying gender dynamics and double standards. And I want you to maybe run with that for a minute, but also I think acknowledge with a Captain Obvious hat on here, there are women in just about every man's life, right? I was raised by a mother, grew up with a younger sister, have been married for 10 years, now have a young daughter. Like these are not issues that are unique. To women, maybe directly so, but it is interesting. And to me, there's something of a, 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 you say stark, and I'll build on that, a stark disconnect in where men will go, even though these issues are most likely uh, part of the fabric of their experience.
2: Right. It's not to say that men don't understand and aren't interested or sympathetic in issues that relate to women, but the reality is that a man does not know what it means to, um, you know, to be pregnant uh, or to be a mother, and women do. And so, the point that many of the women that I was talking to made was that that women need to be heard on those issues, and they understand these issues in ways that men don't. Um, I, another thing that I would point out is that research has shown that women in legislatures are more likely to champion issues that relate to maternal health and children's issues and education, um, and And those are issues that are very important to both men and women, obviously. But women are more likely to champion them. Um, And so if you look at who's in control of a legislature, then the question becomes, are those issues being championed by somebody in the legislature? If it's not a man, and most likely it's going to be a male committee chairperson, um, then who is? And so we could talk about something like... um, uh, Medicaid extension in Mississippi, for instance, that was something that was um, passed by the Mississippi Senate, but uh, several of the men in the House uh, blocked it until after uh, after the Dobbs decision and an abortion uh, and their abortion ban went into effect. But the fact of the matter was that it was men who were blocking a Medicaid extension for postpartum women, um, and I think it would be interesting to, to ponder if you had women who are the heads of, for instance, the Medicaid committee and Mm -hmm. the public health committee, a speaker of the house, uh, would that have happened?
0: Let's stick with that point of leadership here. There has been only one female speaker of the house in the history of the United States. That was, of course, Nancy Pelosi. North Carolina, as just one example, has never had a woman lead the state house. Across the country, there are presently merely nine female speakers of the house. This is one data point. I want us I want to note and then I want you to maybe underscore the importance of it we're talking about rank and file legislators which is an important conversation to have but in many state legislatures the power is consolidated or disproportionately held by those in leadership and there are very few women who are in those places uh, so take that and and I guess move forward with it if you would a little bit what kinds of of impacts and ramifications, uh, does does that set forth?
2: Sure. So, if you think about who who are who are committee chair people and who uh, who are in the leadership, those are the people who are controlling what bills get out of um, onto um, you know the debate stage. So, if you have um, if you have all men or mostly men in those committee chair positions, again, I go back to issues that women are more likely to champion. Um, it's men who are making those decisions. And uh, I'll point out, for instance, in my home state of South Carolina, um, there are 28 standing committees between the House and the Senate, and there are only four uh, hmm. female committee chairs. So out of all of those committees, the people who are making the decisions uh, regarding what bills are going to be debated are, are obviously vastly male. Uh, and in, in Mississippi, I'll go back to the example I was discussing earlier, Uh, you have issues that do directly affect women. When you're talking about Medicaid extension to cover postpartum care, um, they were debating extending it from, as I remember, two months to a year. Um, That is something that directly applies to women. And yet all of the leaders uh, who are making the decision as to whether or not to allow the bill that had been passed by the Senate to be debated in the House, those were all men and they were blocking it. So uh, I I think there's just Uh, A basic question of of fairness and representation
0: there. Uh, Fairness and representation. I want to just underscore that figure you mentioned. Out of 28 committee chairs in South Carolina's legislature, four are women. That's less than 15 percent. ProPublica reporter Jennifer Berry Hawes is with us here on Due South. We're talking about uh, representation and the uh, lack of representation as we think about women relative to men in state legislatures across the South and the country. What are the disparities like as we think about Republican v. Democrat on this front? Uh, do they do they vary much?
2: Yeah, I thought this was one of the most interesting parts of, of the reporting that I did for the story, is that two-thirds of the state legislators across the country are Democrats. Uh, so obviously that means one-third of them are Republicans. And when you're in areas that are Republican strongholds, most of the Southeast, um, that's really creates an impact because you have a party that controls virtually everything in, in these state legislatures and very, very few women serving uh, as Republicans. So um, in your state of North Carolina, for instance, uh, you see that same that same gap, even though North Carolina and Georgia are the two states in the Southeast that do a much better job. You, both of those states uh, come much closer to the national average of one third, but within, um, but within those bodies, you still have two thirds of the, um, of the women being Democrats. And yeah. so uh, that creates part of the disparity we were talking about earlier, as far as a representation when it comes to abortion, part of the reason why there are so few women um, uh, speaking for um, the group that, that wants to restrict abortion uh, access, There's very few women because there's just very few Republican women in particular.
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't note where North Carolina falls into this discussion. Women hold 17 of North Carolina's 50 state Senate seats and 33 of the state's 120 House seats. Uh, I'm interested. Well, I want to note that female representation is better here today than it was a generation ago. And I'm curious how you think we should think about that growth.
2: Well, I think it's 100% positive, except that you have to keep in mind that it's not a straight trajectory. So for instance, in Tennessee, Tennessee today has fewer women in its state legislature than it had 20 years ago. And across much of the Southeast, you, you see you see where it's sort of stabilized uh, at the numbers where it is. And so it's not as if it's a straight trajectory upward, but it's just slow. It's that it's kind of stagnated. And, and in states like um, South Carolina, for instance where I am and um, obviously Tennessee, and Mississippi, Alabama uh, you've started to see a stagnation in fact, in some of the states we saw fewer women elected to the to the legislature in the past few years. So um, the idea that we're kind of on this upward trajectory uh, is is a, a little misleading. We are on the national level but mm-hmm. not necessarily on the state level and especially in these, much more Republican Southeastern states, uh, which goes back to what I was talking yep. about earlier, the need for, for more Republican women to run.
0: 30 seconds or so left. To that point, do you expect, this is a broad overgeneralization, but thank you for playing along, this is an election year. Do you think a year from now there will be more women in state government in elected offices or fewer? Or is, is it, that really just hard to put, a, put a, 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 an estimate or a guess on?
2: I think there will be more women in the legislatures um, broadly across the country. I, I don't see that happening so much in the Southeast because the power structure is what the power structure is. Uh, in, in my state of South Carolina, for instance, the legislature just created an all-male state Supreme Court, the only one in the nation. So uh, I, I'm not uh, 100% confident that, that is going to that we're going to see that kind of progress across the Southeast.
0: Jennifer Barry hawes is a reporter with ProPublica's South Hub, and she recently wrote uh, about the lack of women in state governments. Jennifer, thanks for joining us here on Do South.
2: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Grab a jacket. We're hitting the slopes on the
3: other side. The culture is just people who love it. You, there's something that gets its hooks in you uh, when you hit a mountaintop and you're on the snow. There's something that, that is just different, and it gets its hooks in you, and you just want to be... Part of it, and you want to be around other people who want to be a part of it.
0: This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Welcome back. It's due south on WUNC. Well, the Triangle has not seen a true snowfall in two years, more than a dusting, that is. Despite the warmish winter weather here in the central part of the state, snow remains a big business in North Carolina. And at six resorts, the lifts are moving, hot chocolate is flowing and ski school remains in session. Those half-dozen North Carolina facilities can be found dotting the Appalachian Mountains, from overlooking Tennessee to almost in Georgia. Collectively, those ski, snowboarding, and tubing centers have an economic impact of about a quarter billion dollars annually. Mike Doble is a snow enthusiast based in Boone. He's also the owner and operator of SkiSouthEast.com, and he's here now via the Zoom to discuss Tourism and Business in North Carolina Mountains as it pertains to snow. Mike, welcome to Do South.
3: Thank you. Appreciate you inviting me, and I appreciate the opportunity to share all things snow. Um, It's, you know, white gold here in the state of North Carolina, for sure. White gold. I like that.
0: All right, first things first. Ski conditions. How have they been thus far this season?
3: You know, kind of as predicted, um, typically our season gets going around Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. But in all honesty, you don't start really seeing man-made snow um, in great uh, abundance until like the middle part of December. So we don't really expect to see ski conditions be, um, you know, just the core uh, slopes might be open. For example, at Beach, they might have four or five slopes open by mid-December. But usually by right before the day or so before Christmas, going into that all-important Christmas to New Year's holiday week that's so important to all of the skiers in the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic by then, you certainly want to see ski conditions uh, pretty good. They were, um, I would say, uh, on a A to F type grade, they were probably a, a B mm-hmm. uh, as we went through the holidays. Uh, man, other than the fact that we've had, you know, uh, we got rain uh, last week, right. as you know, uh, uh, over that uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday period. Um, the conditions, I mean, every one of the skiers right now are pretty, are pretty wide open. Conditions are great.
0: So I'm sitting at about 400 feet elevation. You're at about 3,300 feet elevation. What's the range of how much natural snow falls in the North Carolina mountains each year and how much more snow is manufactured?
3: Take that in reverse. Um, without snowmaking, there would be no ski resorts operating uh, each and every you know calendar year. And that goes for the ski, ski areas up in West Virginia as well, even though they get considerably more natural snow. Uh, but without man-made snow, um, and it, and and just to iterate that for your your listeners, there's no such thing as fake snow unless you're talking about that canned variety that you spray on your windows around the holidays. Sure. Um, you know, this is man-made snow. It's real snow. It's just um, made through uh, science and guns. But multiple millions of dollars are invested every year by the ski areas to make snow. Uh, the vast majority, in fact, right? Um, you know, as as we are doing this uh schedule uh this meeting here right now uh appalachian has a base of up to 114 inches of snow on their slopes right now they're fully 100 open all 13 trails with 114 inches um, obviously the vast majority of that 90 percent of that base is man-made snow as far as the answer to your question on the natural snow uh the ski areas around the high country here where i'm at boom banner elk blowing rock um, Beach Mountain and Sugar usually gets the majority of the deeper snows. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're at about 5,500 feet at the top of their mountains. Right. Uh, they will get 80, you know, 80, 85 inches of snow. Right now, Beach, just to give you an idea, is up to 42.5 inches of snow okay. so far this season. Um, Appalachia might get a little less, whatever. Go up to Snowshoe and Canaan and Timberline up in West Virginia. Yeah, They average 180 inches wow, of snow a lot per more. season, a lot more, um, literally over twice as much. Uh, right now I'm looking here at the numbers, but, uh, West Virginia right now is sitting at 76.5 inches of snowfall. So, okay. um, doing pretty good. Let's talk
0: weather and, uh, in a moment climate and the changing realities last week, it was in the seventies here in the triangle in the high country where you sit, it was in the upper fifties you can't really hit the slopes and enjoy skiing or snowboarding when it's that warm. Can you?
3: Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> there's never a bad time to hit the slopes. The cool thing about the, the base conditions is they have their own little kind of, uh, um, they have their own system e- ecosystem that even when it's in the fifties or sixties, as soon as you put on skis, you know, or click on a skis or a snowboard, and you're on that snow, it's considerably chillier. The snow's firm, even at 50 or 60 degrees. Okay. Uh, now, you know, later in the day with a lot of ski or snowboard traffic, you might slush it up a little bit. But, no, conditions, uh conditions are fabulous. It, some of the best ski conditions are when the snow's a bit softer and you can actually carve a bit
0: more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Mike Doble is here on Due South. We're chatting about uh, the white gold industry, snow, here in North Carolina. He operates a couple of websites, skisoutheast.com and ResortsCams resortcams.com. As for climate, Mike, no secret, temperatures are warming. What are some of the biggest climate change impacts, climate change dynamics that the North Carolina ski snow industry is facing and dealing with right now?
3: Um, And it's not just North Carolina. Um, It's worldwide. It's certainly nationwide. Um, You know, we're we're seeing the results. It's, It's not, you can't, you can't deny, certainly, that things are warming a bit. Uh, you, you can deny how it's happening, but you, but there's no denying that it is happening. Uh, the biggest thing that I can tell you is is the ski areas themselves, the management organizations, uh, the owners, uh, the mountain ops people, uh, they are just investing every single year additional millions of dollars. That's why it's important for our ski areas to Uh, To do well, and I'm speaking politically on their behalf a little bit right now, but uh, the economic impact, as you said right up the front of this um, this this um, interview, a quarter of a million, a quarter of a billion dollars in economic impact, and that's North Carolina alone. Um, West Virginia is closer to 600 million annually that they impact the state of West Virginia. By far, skiing and and ski resorts and ski communities in West Virginia. Uh, are the largest uh, employer mm-hmm. during that four or five months out of the year. And they're the, they've got the greatest uh, economic impact, no question about it. Uh, but as far as weather, uh, the biggest influence is uh, without snowmaking, you're not going to have a ski season. So typically we like to see, those of us who love snow and love to ski, we like to see the, a ski area open up um, a, yeah. a day or so before Thanksgiving. Uh, that Thanksgiving weekend and then remain open all the way to the, you know, to April the 1st or March 31st. Yeah. Uh, we're not seeing any change in that with the weather. Uh, we're still able to open early mm-hmm. and we're still able to stay open until late. Okay. But what we're seeing is we have to get those narrowing windows of opportunity where they can make snow. Yeah. They may come a little fewer and far, further between. So they have to be able <laughs> to make hay while the sun shines. They have to make yeah. snow whenever those temperatures allow.
0: I want to roll with seasons for a second at the risk of stating the obvious. Generally speaking, ski snow seasons uh, are longer in Colorado and the Adirondacks and northern Vermont. However, the resorts in our states do have an off season, uh, and I'm going to liken this to a cover crop in the agricultural world. Uh, Tell us about what several of these ski spots, ski resorts are doing in the other three seasons to generate business and, and
3: activity. Well, sure. You know, there's a difference between, you know, we have 16 ski areas or ski resorts in the southeast and mid-Atlantic, uh, six here in the state of North Carolina, uh, Hatley Point being the newest of those, kind of replacing what used to be Wolf Laurel, Wolf Ridge. Uh, right now, they're not open. They just announced yesterday they're not going to be open this year. Uh, but the biggest thing that, that you see skier is doing, if, if they're a ski destination, such as a snowshoe or an Omni Homestead, or Massanutten up in Virginia, those sorts of things. If they're a destination resort where they're literally three seasons, four seasons, uh, you'll see them, you know, they'll do uh, barbecues and blues, you know, brews and barbecues or whatever during July and the summer months and that sort of thing. Festivals, you'll see a lot of that. Music festivals, whatever. If they're literally a ski resort, which most obviously all of our ski areas here in the state of North Carolina are pretty much classified as that, a ski resort and off-season activities, that would include mountain biking, which is huge. We're seeing more and more of that at every single ski area now where uh, there is a big uh, influence now in uh, mountain biking terrain and those sorts of things. So mountain biking is probably the chief, number one. Uh, And then you'll just see the hikers, bikers, you know, those kind of people that are just going to come up and enjoy the different different seasons of the year for sure. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, no mountains that I'm aware of in the deep South, uh, is North Carolina something of a jumping off point for people who are living farther South, uh, a sort of entry into this snow space?
3: Sure. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, we, we get most of the traffic here in the state of North Carolina, certainly from the state of North Carolina. Uh, they'll come from Raleigh, Durham, you know, et cetera, Winston-Salem, Chapel Hill, you name it. But, um, you know, the nine Southeastern states, you know, chief amongst that being our Florida crowd. Um, you know, we have a tremendous wealth of people, for example, here in Boone and Bannerell, uh, the town of Elk balloons in the summer because of the Florida population. People who have summer homes mm-hmm. and vacation homes and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from that standpoint, um, you know, we, we see we see a lot of the same thing we've seen for 20, 25 years. Nothing really changes. Sure. Sure. okay. Uh, I grew up in New England. Uh, doing a little bit of cross-country
0: skiing my father introduced me to that neither of my parents have ever downhill skied I didn't downhill ski until I was 20 uh I think most people know this but it's not it's not cheap right like there's a lift ticket there's gear skis poles bindings cold weather attire uh it seems like you would be hard-pressed also to do this in a day unless you're really close to one of these resorts so lodging and, and meals foods things like that um is this an activity snow whether it's snow you know, tubing or snowboarding or skiing that prices out a lot of people?
3: Um, I think it's fair to say that there's maybe a small level of that. Although you got to remember, man, one of our favorite terms is those of us who love to ski are called ski bums. (laughs) You know, there's always been an opportunity to be a ski bum and still be able to do it. You know?
0: Uh, to somebody who has not ever, well, let, let's roll with that for a second. Uh, ski bums. Um, I, I, you know, th- this to me is the is the inversion is the winter of 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 those who, who have a uh, a surfboard and are just looking for for waves to ride. Uh, right, like they, they've got the wave report. You've got a snow report. You mentioned ski bums. Talk to me a little bit about the culture uh, of skiing uh, for somebody who's never hit the slopes before. What's your what's your pitch? Why is this worth the time and the money?
3: You know, first of all, there's there's you know whether it's the Gen Xers or the Gen Zers or whatever, uh, there does seem to be a growth uh, in the younger crowd now. Uh, Obviously, they're more into snowboarding, but the bottom line is there is a growth in the people that are uh, willing to come up and camp out in the in the parking lots and sleep in their cars, their vehicles. Uh, You're seeing that. So the old fashioned ski bum used to be we used to be able to go into the resort cafeteria and pick a spot, and they wouldn't run you out. You, you could put up a little bunk there and stay overnight. <laughs> you can't do that much anymore. You, you you just don't see that much anymore. The culture is, I'll, I'll just tell you, man, uh, people who love skiing and snowboarding and all things snow, we're all just kindred spirits. When, when you meet, for example, we've got a, a Ski Southeast Summit that's going to happen at Massanutten February 9th, 10th, and 11th. Um, if, you, if you love snow, join us. Go to Ski Southeast. The, the prompt's right there. I think we're up to 230, 240 people already coming. A lot of these people, we've never met each other. Um, but I can assure you, over the 14 years we've been doing these summits, uh, there's a lot of people who now travel out west. Uh, they meet each other in the off-season. So the culture is just people who love it. You, there's something that gets its hooks in you uh, when you hit a mountaintop and you're on the snow. There's something that that is just different, and it gets its hooks in you, and you just want to be – part of it and you want to be around other people who want to be a part of it
0: what's the breakdown of those skiing versus those snowboarding versus those tubing uh if you can just offer a general breakdown of it is it it like 80 percent of people are skiing or 90 percent like what's the what's the snowboard uh participation rate that's really what i'm trying to get at
3: man that dynamics changed obviously a lot just in the last 10 years um it's changed a lot I, i would say when you get out on it depends on when you go if you go on a weekend where a lot of newbies are coming up from all over the southeast they're visiting a ski resort for a long getaway weekend uh you're gonna see a lot more skiers because a lot of the the uh people who only ski once or twice or they hit the snow once or twice in a winter you'll see more skiers so the breakdown might be you know 70 30. Uh, if you go on a weekday, uh monday through thursday you go on a weekday. 're probably going to see just the flip opposite of that you'll see seventy percent of them are snowboarder thirty percent are skiers um simply because the the die are are transitioning certainly more to snowboarding these days um I'm a skier I've also done the snowboarding thing I love I kind of enjoyed it it's hard work for me you know you're doing crunches all the time getting up because uh, even the best snowboarders fall a lot <laughs> they're on their rear ends a lot um but yeah I think the breakdown is Honestly, overall, probably now closing in on 60, 40, uh, going over more towards snowboarding.
0: Oh, wow. As we think about points of entry, I believe that there are some opportunities to get a lift ticket for pretty cheap, like 20 bucks or maybe under certain times during the week. Um, think of app, app ski mountain, um, where are the, I guess the easiest points of entry Uh, If you have never been in this place before, if you know either times of the week uh, or something that is just kind of that that initial door opening,
3: Um, go around one o'clock. You know, so try to get a full day lift pass. I don't care where you go, uh, even the cheapest, um, you're still going to spend forty, fifty bucks, sixty bucks. You know, for a lift ticket. Um, If you go after noon, you know, you, you hit that second part of that day session. Uh, you can get one a bit cheaper uh, for sure. Um, I would say also rent your skis off, you know, go to a ski shop, uh, Get go to a local ski shop. You know, there are ski shops in every major city, you know, in the Southeast. Um, go to your local guy, uh, tell them what you're trying to do, and, and they'll probably give you a bit of a deal. Um, they could boot fit you a little bit better and that sort of thing. So entry points, to, you know, if you want to get in and, and, and uh, get hooked on this. Yeah. Uh, you want to get in for cheap. Uh, I would say uh, do that. Try to go afternoon, one o'clock. Tell them you're not going to stick around till the uh, second half, six to ten range. You're just going to be there for three or four hours. Uh, you can probably get a discounted ticket.
0: Mike Doble is a snow enthusiast based in the high country Boone, Watauga County, North Carolina, and he's been chatting with us about the industry of snow, a.k.a. white gold, here on Do South. Mike, thanks for all the knowledge.
3: Yeah, man. Appreciate you having me on uh, anytime.
0: Remember, if you miss any of the Do South action, you can find past segments, conversations uh, and more at DoSouthRadio.org. If you've got a question, a complaint, an offering or idea for the show, email us, DoSouth, D-U-E-S-O-U-T-H, at wun And of course, you can find our podcast offerings wherever you do that, downloading Apple, Spotify, so on and so on. New South is produced by Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Our executive producer is Aaron Kiever. my co-host, Leonita Inge, my name is Jeff Tabiri. Join us again tomorrow at 10.